everyone. I'm your host, Aviva Rumani, and welcome to episode 16 of Kindred Cast, Lion Tree's bi-weekly podcast featuring insights and stories from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Today, we're pleased to present Lion Tree CEO Arya Borkoff in conversation with Peter Guber, the chairman and CEO of Mandalay Entertainment, as well as the co-owner of four professional sports teams, most timely, the LA Dodgers, who were just bested by the Houston Astros after a great series of games in Game 7 of the 2017 World Series. Stay tuned for an insightful and lively conversation about Peter's fascinating career. Peter Guber is a legendary figure in Hollywood whose roster of productions includes films that garnered five Best Picture Academy Award nominations, winning for Rain Man, and box office hits such as The Color Purple, Midnight Express, Batman, Flashdance, The Kids Are All Right, and Soul Surfer. As co-owner of the Golden State Warriors, he's seen the team crown NBA champs in two of the last three years. Peter continues to serve as a professor at UCLA, and his most recent book, Tell to Win, became an instant number one New York Times bestseller. Please enjoy this far-ranging, intimate chat in which Peter tells how he came to be involved with the Dodgers, why bond is more important than brand, and the promise of esports. Peter Guber is an executive, entrepreneur, educator, and author. He is the chairman and CEO of Mandalay Entertainment. Peter's films have earned over $3 billion worldwide at the box office and have garnered 50 Academy Award nominations. Peter is also co-owner of four professional sports teams, the Golden State Warriors, the Los Angeles Dodgers, the Los Angeles FC Football Club, and the professional esports organization Team Liquid. Peter is also chairman of Dick Clark Productions, which produces the American Music Awards, Golden Globe Awards, and other programs. He's a professor at the UCLA School of Theater, Film, and Television, and the UCLA Anderson School of Management. I really appreciate your being here with us at this time, especially given the fact that it's still the week of the World Series here in Los Angeles. So congratulations on all that so far. I like the so far part. <laughs> exactly. It's a pleasure having you on Kindred Cast and our podcast to tell the story. So first uh, with sports, let's just talk about the Los Angeles Dodgers because you are a winner in so many respects and the season has been tremendous, but the World Series just ended and obviously the Houston Astros beat the Los Angeles Dodgers, but a dream season. So how are you feeling today? Absolutely great. Wonderful. A dream come true. Yeah? Yeah. Just think about the rarefied air of going a whole season, playing 16 preseason games, 162 regular season games and 20 or so postseason games, 200 games, and getting to the seventh game at the World Series at Dodger Stadium. Never before a seventh game World Series there after 39 years we're in the World Series. I would say I'm thrilled. The team's young and good, and it's a journey. And now you have dreams and expectations of where you can go and an unfulfilled promise, and it will get fulfilled. You've been on both sides of this, and obviously you love the journey, as you said. But a lot of athletes say that losing hurts more than winning feels good. You've been on both sides of that. How do you think about that? You know, I mean, so many things that have losing as almost an equal component to it. You know, make a movie or that'd be a great strategy. Just make hits. I made many flops, really, really unique flops, all kinds of flops. And everywhere you mentioned, you mentioned the hits, the flops. I mean, I've even had flops like bonfires of the vanities when they were shown on planes, people tried to walk out. It's, it's been a constant barrage. You know, wouldn't that be a great strategy? Just make hits. Can't do it in basketball, esports, baseball. So you have to learn that up and down, failure and success are part of the journey. And as soon as you believe, as soon as you force yourself to think, oh my God, you can't fail, 
you're going to limit your success because failure and success are so close together. So sports really coaches you in that strategy and that philosophy. The story is that when you came to have an opportunity to be part owner of the Dodgers, that Magic Johnson was really the one that persuaded you to do it. And he called you and said, come on, we've been so lucky together. We've been so good together. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Is that how you came into the Dodgers? It's true. I was acquiring the Dodgers with Joe Lacob, my current partner with the Warriors. And we had the opportunity to join Frank McCourt originally when Frank was buying the Dodgers from Fox. And we agreed to do it. And at the last minute, literally the last minute, Frank wanted us to put up even more money. We put up a huge amount. And we just said that was too much then. And we bowed out and I thought that was the end of it. Everybody thought that was the end. We'll never see the Dodgers again. And lo and behold, nine years later, I had the opportunity when Magic came to me. We already owned the Warriors and we already owned other teams and businesses. Very successful together. Magic and I theaters and minor league baseball teams, huge number of minor league baseball teams, very successfully. And he said, you got to do it. You got to do it. I really wasn't thrilled about going back and doing it. And then I said, okay, I'll put up a ton of money and join. And that's what I did. So the three of us, the two Guggenheim guys and Magic and myself became partners. I knew the business because I was the managing partner of the Dodgers AAA team in Las Vegas. So I had known the team and everything and had done the due diligence with Frank McCourt on buying the Dodgers. So I had a lot of what I call native intelligence. I knew how much deferred maintenance there was and how much was done. I knew what the protocols were on parking and what the protocols were on the land use. I had done all of the research for the acquisition earlier. There wasn't really much that would change. The building was in the same place. It was in the same city. The management was pretty much the same. And the operational basis and the ticketing and the revenues were pretty clear. So I had a real good good grounding on it. And that was very helpful in making the decision and helping. How long, when you bought the team to now, did you have a plan in terms of how long it would take to become a winning franchise and building it the right way? I mean, did you have a view and a vision for that? I always looked at the most important thing in an organization is the culture. That's the best business plan, a good culture, because that helps you with the vicissitudes of ups and downs in life that you're not in control of, the marketplace, the competition, and that allows you to have a really strong tiller. So when the drama of the business turns, you have a clear view of what to do. So attitude puts aptitude on steroids. I mean, the idea of all this aptitude that we had in there was great, but the attitude has to be, it's a journey, it's long, it's uncertain, and it's filled with pitfalls and punctures. So you have to really have build your culture that way. And we did with the choice of the manager, the GM that came aboard, all the different people brought a certain value proposition that melded together, created the culture for the company. You see the people coming up from the AAA team that really filled the slot. We saw not all free agents. When you look at Corey Seager and Cody Bellinger and Jock Peterson and Charlie Culberson and a lot of the pitchers and the catcher and Barnes, they all came from my AAA team. I'm the managing partner of the AAA team in Oklahoma City. That's a team we own. and Part of the Dodgers franchise. Yeah, but I'm the managing partner of that because I've done that all these years. And so you see, culture is bottom up. Culture is acquiring the right people on the outside. Culture is providing leadership at the top. But all of that is part of the culture of an organization. You can know whether a company or organization is resilient and successful by looking at its culture. And it should be transparent. It should show through 60 miles an hour on a rainy, foggy night. That should show through. And that is really the value proposition that creates the ability to be resilient. Be, be, and the foundation. Be, and the foundation. It is the foundation. So I always look to help build that, help provide that, help provide the spiritual leadership for it, emotional leadership. I don't play first base. I don't pitch. And I don't decide who's the pinch hitter. But you could if you were asked to. No, I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't. I would make mistakes. And the same with anything. In my movies, I don't stand on the set and say, do this, do this, direct that, direct this. You know, you know what you do and do what you know. And so the idea is 
culture is something that I think is the inherent thing that runs across all my enterprises. But just sticking with the Dodgers for a second, just allow yourself a moment now because the season just ended. What was your favorite moment of the series or the season that you really hang on to and say, wow, this was a clear inflection point for what we created as a franchise? Or just a really nostalgia about what the series meant to you? What the series meant to me is you can't win the fight unless you're in the fight. That's what you have to realize. So you have that journey, that long journey, you're in the fight and you have to take sucre and joy from being in that battle, having the opportunity value. It's an opportunity arising. You get into it and you do the best you can and you bring the best talent to it, best resourcefulness and resources to it and let God take care of the rest. Is it the movie God? Is it the baseball God? Is it the sports God? Or is it the God? I'm not sure. The California God? I pray to all of them. (laughs) I pray to the weather God, everything. But the reality is you put the pieces in position and, you know, you bake it. And the same ingredients you make this day don't work the next day. It's always part of the leavening process. And you have to marvel at the fact that serendipity works too. You know, some obscure play-up all of a sudden does something great or some actor emerges from a movie or some ingredient makes all the difference. Some unapprised, undervalued asset turns out it's overvalued in its performance. That's what you hope for. You have to, and you have to hope for those good surprises. You have to build your attitude, your own attitude, because if you go up and down every time you get a home run or every time you get a picture that gets a great review, it's a mistake. You have to have a, I say, have both a long view and a short view. And if you don't have a long game and a short game, you'll go insane. Yeah, I always say everyone thinks of themselves as a long-term player, a long-term investor. If the short-term is not working, they forget about a long-term pretty quickly and focus on the short-term fixes. It's true. <laughs> it's true. But, you know, the idea is you're going to have losses. You're going yeah. to have wins and losses. You know, we had this incredible season and we lost like 15 of 17 games at the end of the season. They said we were done. Well, we were done with losing and we then won 10 in a row and went on to win. There's shibboleths and rules that people listen to. But when you're in the middle of the fire, you have to look at that next day, that next batter, that next movie, that next investment. You have to look at it as if for the first time. If you bring the pain and the anxiety of the past into it, you won't make good decisions. You leave the pitcher in one more inning. Do you go with a pinch hitter? Do you go with a guy who hardly made the squad, Jock Peterson, and then hits three home runs? You know, you're not the master of the universe. There's a lot of moving parts to it. So you have to have some kind of, you go crazy otherwise, some kind of an attitude when you're dealing with the uncertainty of audiences. Audiences are fickle. They'll root for you or they'll come to your movies and they want to win it too. You're in a relationship with your audience. You're not in a transaction with them. Mm -hmm. You have to aim for their hearts, Mm -hmm. not their wallets. You have consistency though, because this approach is working, not just obviously in baseball, but also basketball. I mean, the Golden State Warriors now has probably grown as a brand as, as a franchise into probably the most adored and respected brands in all professional sports. You're building not just a culture and a foundation, but a real brand that I think obviously plays into the audience. Your partner, Joe Lake, have said about you that, quote, he cares more than any owner about the team, the image of the team, and what the fans think. Is that true? I don't know more than anybody. I can't care more than I do, meaning I care fully. I really think that the combination of listening to your audience and making sure they hold your asset in their heart, not in their wallet, that they look at it as theirs, surrendering proprietorship to them so they feel that it's theirs, their experience is theirs, and venerating their experience. Then you build a relationship with them. And relationship capital is very undervalued. It's crucial because you can't get a new audience every time. You have to get them to come back. You have to get them to virally advocate for you, whether it's movies or whether it's music or whether it's any of the businesses I'm in. All of my businesses, even when I don't have a team, I'm in LAFC, my football team. I have one player and a stadium being built, but I have to get my audience to care. I have to get them 
to emotionally resonate with the promise that we make. That's the connection, not the contact you have to make with audiences. And I don't look at them as customers. Customers, you're aiming for their wallet. Audiences, you're aiming for the heart. And that's what hits a born. And relationships made. I think relationship capital is very, very undervalued by most people. You know, most people are thinking, well, the bottom line and give me the dollars and that's what it is. But man, getting a new customer each time, that's real hard slog. Whereas the relationship capital means we're together. You know, we understand each other. We resonate with each other's purpose. I give you the tools for you to own it and we'll be the steward of it. And if you really mean that, you know, the audience stays with you all through all kinds of things. And your employees own the process much differently. And then you have a different environment. And that's what I think breeds success for your business. Yeah, the brand affinity. Yeah, right? brand affinity is crucial because in word of mouth is more powerful than any 30-second spot you can take of. When you put your hands on somebody say, I love that it was a great experience, I had fun. People want that. They're looking to have that for themselves. And really what you're trying to buy is mind share and time share of your audience. And if you don't have that relationship, they won't give it to you. Nobody won't come back to the Dodgers because we lost the seventh game of the World Series. It would be asinine to believe. If you've given them the value and you had... 56,000 people, stadium full, cheering for it. It was their team, their experience. You know, they weren't cheering for laundry. They were cheering for their experience with the team that they owned and talked about. And that's what you do. And you want that in a movie. And you want that in a product. You really want that in a product. You want a product to have that. So when you look at businesses with products, you want them to have not the brand. Of, yeah, but it's not brand affinity. I have a different word for it. It's bond. It's not the brand. It's the bond, the relationship you have with the product, the service, the value proposition. It's that bond that they have. Brand is just a mark. It's what does it mean to me? Human beings crave meaning. That's what they crave. When you have a product that has meaning for people in their lives and they carry it there, you've got an incredible value that anybody wants to attach to. Any advertiser, promoter wants to attach to that because now you're in the emotional transportation business. When you move people emotionally, and you connect a product to it, all the information and data of that product becomes resonant, memorable, and actionable. And that's what advertisers want. And that's what people want with their affinity with products. So I see that with the Dodgers. I see that with the Warriors. I see that with LAFC. I see that with our esports business. I see that with Dick Clark. Now, some things, the brand itself is more hidden. Like when Dick Clark, nobody goes to Dick Clark. Maybe some advertisers look at the brand as meaning something to them by advertising. They go to the Golden Globes. They go to the Golden Globes. Right. Each one of them have their own relationship. Yeah. And that's good. Yeah. You're speaking to me about this. You're passionate about it. You're speaking to all of us on the podcast about this. But in the organization, you have to obviously get this into the system. So who do you speak to about this philosophy to implement it in the culture of the company? You know, there's a word that I use. And it's true about the product, it's true about the service, and it's true about the leadership in a company. They have to be authentic. What does authentic mean to me? It means that the leaders and the management, feet, tongue, heart, and wallet all got to go the same direction. They can't be saying something the feet going a different direction. So when you put those alignment together, everything they say and do rests on a palette of authenticity. There's a whole different level of credibility. It's more than eye contact, it's heart contact. And when you do that, People own the content in a different place in their being, in their lives. It gives human beings, as I said, crave meaning. And that's the meaning they want for their lives. And when you can connect, not just contact, on that level, here's what happens. Your audience, I don't call them consumers. I don't call them customers because that's when you're aiming for their wallet. I call them audiences. And audiences expect experiences. They expect how do they feel? What's the benefit of this product? Not what does it mean? What does it really benefit me? How does it affect my life? And when you do that, you have a 
audience that's a participant, not a passenger, in their own experience. Everybody wants to be a participant in their own experience. So that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to connect. That's right. You want to try to connect on that level and then turn them from passengers to participants. Help them become participants. Make them feel they make a difference in the outcome. That's the value of live sports and media. That audience thinks they make a difference in the outcome. You ask any audience that goes to the game, I make a difference in the game. And the statistics show they do. So let's talk about live sports and media and where it's going for a second as it relates to sports because it starts with what you said. 56,000 people are in the stadium. They feel it. It's their team. They're cheering together and the whole city obviously feels that. Then you get into media and traditional media and I think, for example, Game 6 of the World Series had the second best viewership ever in the World Series with 22 million people watching it, right? That's the highest since 2009. But then how do you actually get into the technology distribution of sports? Because we've seen in other areas now, let's say in football, for example, Twitter in 2016 paid $10 million to live stream 10 Thursday night NFL games. This year, Amazon paid $50 million for the same package for technology. Facebook signed a deal for one of the Major League Baseball games per week. What's happening now in sports vis-a-vis technology to further that distribution and that fan base? That's a perfect question. That's a, that's a fastball with three men on base in the ninth inning. On the to corner? Me, to me. No, down no, the right down the middle. <laughs> I got to hit that right down the middle back to you. And here it is. That's exactly the sea change that's happening. When you think of linear broadcast, linear broadcast, you are broadcasting it. The audience, individual audience, is getting it to everybody at once in the same way. Generally, there's no response to it. You're watching, you feel it as a response, but you can't really act on it. When you change it, and you go from analog to a digital delivery system, now you know who that audience is, that individual audience is. You know how they're consuming it. They can talk back to you directly and to their friends directly. They can interface the same way they are at the stadium with their whole social group. They can react to things and feel a part of it, therefore be a participant. It helps to turn them into a participant from a passenger. And it helps cultivate that participation because they are participating with their friends, with their social group, in the way they want, how they want, simultaneously. And you know everything about them. You do not know everything about all the people watching. You know generally what that audience is doing and thinking and who they are in their age. But now you'll know specifically that particular audience, how they consume the product, how they feel about it moment to moment, how they watch it, how they pass it along. And so all advertisers want that information. They would like to focus their attention and their intention on those one-to-one relationships, which are usually much deeper. So that is a big change. You still have plenty of room for broadcast media, for what we call large media. But there are these now, what we call digital natives, that didn't grow up like you and I. They grew up with always having a word at the party. And some of them, we say, oh, we'll call them cord cutters. But let me say this, you look at esports, their cord never is. They've never had a cord. They've become digital natives. So if you don't know how to deal with digital natives, an audience that's growing exponentially, then you've got a problem, Houston. The idea, well, Houston didn't have a problem last night, but they, <laughs> they have a problem with that. And the problem is you have to be ambidextrous. You have to have a linear attitude and a digital aptitude. And if you don't mix the two, you're making a difficult bet because there is still a huge audience that watches you know, linear. linear television. Yeah. But that other audience doesn't watch it and they don't consume it in the same way. You have to have that ambidexterity to it. You have to understand that. There are audiences that just are digital. You look at esports, it's almost all digital. So when they try to do something on broadcast television, who are they talking to? It's like the sound of hello in the woods. <laughs> it's not that it's 
but they have to try to cultivate an audience that's actually a general audience that is linear, that is non-digital to watch it. And there's some of that too, because a lot of the people that go to the live events, esports are not playing esports, but they like the activity, they like the action, they like the competition, and they're interested in the game viewership. But these are audiences that are now not in a collision, they're in a takeover mode. This other audience is going to get larger, more robust, and more important for the advertising marketplace. So we're seeing that away, but you can't afford to avoid the other audience because it's enormous still. Yeah, I thought it was interesting and very groundbreaking about how the World Series was handled with Fox as the broadcast partner. And then you constantly were sent to YouTube's TV product right. as part of that. So you had what you're talking about, the linear as well as the digital going on at the same time. I call it dancing with the enemy. So the, what happens is they all know that they need each other in some strange way. It's kind of a strange bedfellows. They'd like to kill the other, but they can't kill the other because one's an adversary and one's an ally at different times, you know? It's an interesting conundrum to handle because one of the things that you have to recognize is that there's an enormous amount of capital to be harvested from the linear television market. And it'll still be that way for a long time. And yet there's a lot of very big value to be had by this new audience who are digital natives and are growing up that way and who want to be involved one-to-one with the products that are spending time of their heart and their mind. And it's an expansion opportunity. And it's expansion opportunity. That's an interesting balance. And it's going to be a challenge for a while. I think the interesting part is, really the interesting element is, it's just the way AV, audiovisual cartridges, did time-shifting for the audience so that you shifted from the network controlling when I see the product to the audience controlling when I see the product. This is shifting how I participate from a, if you will, a somewhat passive position to a very active position. That change is happening. And brands, are, you know, they want to play in both markets. Even the advertising they have to provide is different. You can't provide the same advertising, take a linear piece of advertising and blunk it on to a piece of digital media and have it work. It's inauthentic, back to the authentic word. Correct. So there's you know, there's some, not duplication, there's some balancing recognition, acts. balancing between the two. It takes people to be able to speak both languages. That's really what it is. I was in China, and when I had to wait, when I was making deals in China for the translator to do it, there was an intermediary who translated the words, but not the attitude. So if I didn't speak Chinese, I never knew what the words kind of really meant. And what the nuance was, where the value was. And there's, there's some of that here, too, because these are two different languages. Linear that can't translate to digital the not same as way. Not, not one-to-one. Right. What does it mean? Well, so you prefer to be sitting at the seat of the content and the owner of the team than you will be sitting in the media seat, necessarily, because you are sitting here that has an asset that can be monetized across both. If you have the Warriors or you have the Dodgers or any sports team effectively, which league or which part of your portfolio has gotten it right or is further along? Because all going to get to the same place. Is it basketball or is it baseball or is it soccer? What do you think? Each one of them have unique challenges. Just like there's a challenge in the movie business now to keep their audience, to, you know, get in the car, drive to the place. And what's happened is there's no longer a movie going business. There's them going to a movie business. In other words, yeah. no one says, let's go to movies on Friday night. They say, let's go to this movie on Friday night. That's a big change. It sounds like a little change. It's a giant change. One's a habituation. The other one's an opportunity. Hmm. All right? And they're very different. In this area, the older, more mature audience, I would say 35 and above. Some of you might argue, say it's 37. Some of you say it's 32. That's irrelevant. It's a moving platform. But the audience above does want to watch linear television and have a second screen where they can pick up other information and other data and such. My 
sons who are 22 and 23, they watch a $100 million movie on this smartphone. I don't know if it's that smart to watch a $100 million movie on that. <laughs> we spent so much time, money, and effort in color and correction and sound correction. And they're watching it while they're listening to something else. That They're not just multitasking. They're many tasking at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's a different market, different way of addressing them. So which one's farther along? I would say to you that both of them are struggling with how to make the transition because their money is on the traditional analog side. And yet so much of the future is on the digital side that they're trying to balance the both. Are the major media companies trying to make them choose? Yeah, but it's a, it's a Faustian deal. And they're themselves trying to figure out a way to go over the top. They're the way themselves that they want to talk. Their advertisers want them to speak to their product users with a digital voice too. So everybody's in that same cauldron trying to figure out where to lay their bets. Right now, they're laying on both sides. Certainly, the, the baseball is laying them on both sides. And basketball. I think basketball is more ambidextrous. The audience is younger. They're more global. Um, more global. And something else, too, is really interesting. The sport of basketball is different than the sport of baseball. The sport of baseball is a narrative sport. There's generally spaces between the innings, even between the batters, where a narrative can happen. So the, the digital voice can keep the audience much more interested than they did in the past. Before that, you sat with your hands in your lap, and you just looked at each other, and maybe you had a peanut or a ice cream, and that was it. Now you can be looking at the play-by-play, we're looking at the information, looking at the statistics, playing fantasy, all doing it. So baseball is very unique and it can really build on the opportunity of the space between. Basketball, the game itself is so rapid that being on the second screen at a game, for example, or even at home is is a different challenge. You don't have those spaces. So they're going to address them differently. They have to address them differently. So based on that, which one is better in the digital format? Because Based on what you just said, the spaces may lend itself nicely to ancillary opportunities in baseball, like the digital commentary, the narrative, the engagement with the audience, because you have that space. But basketball, people are very engaged around the world every day. You, you're right. You've handled the conundrum perfectly. It's, it's, <laughs> if I had the answer to the conundrum, I'd be a conundrum answerer. But I'm not. I'm, I'm trying to balance myself between these two worlds so I can mine from them for our team, for the players, for the league, for our advertisers. And Mark is the most value. So you got to play with both. The interesting part is, and it really is an interesting part, is when you look at baseball, you look at the pace of a basketball game. It's breathtaking. So you say, well, that's why baseball is a challenge. Baseball is a challenge. We had 4 million people through Dodger Stadium in baseball. I don't consider that a challenge. I consider it a value proposition. It's not the length of the game, baseball. It's the pace of the game. You know, I'll show you a movie that's three hours that plays like a rocket and a movie that's 90 minutes that plays like lead. It's the pace. Mm -hmm. So baseball has that challenge of dealing with pace. The digital framework and, say, fantasy sports can help that pace, can help fill that area so that the people are active in between. So that's one thing that happened. And both of them are going to see a yet another explosion in the way they did with fantasy when gambling happens. It will happen. It's inevitable. When that happens, you're going to see a whole new involvement of participation. Because when people take their wallet out to bet on their emotions, oof, then you're going to see people staying until the ninth inning in the last pitch. And you're going to see people at the basketball game where there's a 20-point spread hanging in there the whole way with their fantasy or with their gambling. So these are all things that are on the rise and they're going to be yet other elements in the equation. It's all about the engagement, it sounds like. It starts with what you said before about the culture, the quality, the brand, the team, the ability to kind of connect with people. If you have that, doesn't matter what sport, doesn't matter what your millennial audience is or your older audience is or your younger audience is. It's about actually people wanting to be 
part of the system, part of the story. Here's my saying that I've been saying for several years. We're in the emotional transportation business. If you're not in the emotional transportation business, you got four flat tires and no gas in the tank. You got to be in the emotional transportation business because every single advertiser wants to connect with that brand or that product or that experience so that like a Trojan horse, they have that emotional experience. The audience has it. They own it and they pass it along. They virally market it. And what happens is it downloads all the information about the product. It downloads all the information about the experience and their own authentic voice, Mm -hmm. which is really great. So that ability to have that is what the brands and services and products want for themselves. So they search it out in those businesses like movies, television, music, and live theater and all those things where people have that experience naturally. That's what they want to be bonded to. Right. Well, it also helps, I think, to have a portfolio approach. You have constructed a great portfolio. And I want to talk about the newest addition to that portfolio in sports, which is the Team Liquid eSports franchise that you purchased with our friend Ted Leonsis, right, right, as part of the investor group. Team Liquid, I think, competes in tournaments such as StarCraft II, League of Legends, Hero of the Storm, Overwatch, Halo. Talk about the eSports. League of Legends and the winner of the World Championship four weeks ago in eSports was our Dota team, World Champions. So so the idea is we are winning across a lot of businesses. The idea of eSports, which is really interesting, is we're talking about true digital natives. A culture change, not just a business or product change, a culture change. These folks involved with these sports, it's a lifestyle for them. It isn't Saturday night at the movies. It isn't going to one baseball game. It isn't watching two television games of the NBA. It's a lifestyle change. Their speak, their language, their connection is completely different. It's unique. That doesn't mean you can't get involved with it. It doesn't mean it's like foreign to everybody else. It is. Because if you don't play the games, watching them is more difficult, obviously. But there are some games, some of the arenas and venues that sell out in 10, 15, 20 minutes, and 30%, 35% of the audience don't play the game. They like watching the game. This is still a nascent business. League of Legends, I think, is only seven years old. So you're talking about games that have been around forever since, since Nolan Bushnell was doing them. But the point is, they've now reached escape velocity. They're now part of the culture. They're actually invested in the culture. You're seeing gaming expressed in other businesses because that gaming resonates with a culture that wants to be not a passenger, but a participant. But you get esports. A lot of people in our business look at esports and it's obviously changing and says, I don't really understand this. We're literally going to go to an event and watch other people play games when we're not participating ourselves. How does that even work? How does that match up with normal sports, the way we think about it. What is it about esports that you got so quickly and why are you investing in it? Why are you jumping all in? Ever since the Sony years, I became really invested in technology in what I consider my unique way. Yeah. My unique way is I look at my life, what I do as a connector of artists and audiences. Wherever artists are and wherever audiences are, my job is connecting them. So when I see a terrific audience or a terrific set of artists, I realized that how do I connect and multiply? How do I create value from it and multiply it? So when I saw this audience that was not watching linear television, they really weren't going to live sporting events. They were listening to music and they followed music. They weren't like complete outliers to all the cultural elements. But the way they were consuming and experiencing this activity was so compelling to them. It was part of their lifestyle. And that audience was doing three things. One, it was expanding. That was an amazing notion. And it was underserving African-American market, which is a big entertainment market, and women, 
which is a big market, and Hispanics. I said, look at that marketplace when it connects to where that's going to go. It was global by definition. Baseball is not global by definition. Yeah, in Japan and Korea, a few places. Basketball, pretty global. Soccer, pretty global. American football, not global at all. Cricket, not global, but big in its areas. This is a global phenomenon. So I saw that aspect of it. Then I saw another aspect of it was really, really elemental to it. You could actually participate and play along with the games in that environment with the people that are playing. I can't go shoot fouls with Steph Curry, but I can play along with Piglet and the different people in, in our esports business. And it was my cultural music, the young people said. You and I... Mm-hmm aren't 20 years old. We remember our parents yelling, why are you listening to that noise for? Shut off that noise, you know? <laughs> and I remember when Michael Jackson did that black and white record and you're all the cacophony and before the record and the father yells, shut off the music, shut off the music, you know? <laughs> but that's been going on since, since I grew up with the Beatles and everybody else. Why are you listening to that? This drivel, you know? Everybody has their own music. This is the music for these 20 and 17 and 16 and 15 and 19 years old. You're just not recognizing most people older as music, meaning it's the thing that lights up their heart. It's the thing that they talk about. It's the thing that they commit to. It's their language. It's the laundry they root for. And so you have to recognize it as that. And so if you well, know- Well, you see something that most people don't see, which is you start with the engagement. Yeah. Right. In any way that you can see the engagement, that's what attracts you. Yes. And then, and then you look for the business opportunity as a result of that. And then you have to learn to speak that language. You don't have to learn to sing as good as they do or perform on the stage as good as they do, but you have to find some way to resonate with them so that they get you and you get them. I always felt that when I was running Sony, when I was talking to, I ran all the software stuff for Sony and I didn't run the hardware. And when I was talking to even Ogre or Morita, and they spoke English, sort of, and then I'd have a translator. When the translator said something, it was already cold. It wasn't a warm meal. It didn't have the, the smell, the taste of liveness to me. So it was already digested, it felt. And that's what it is for these people. You have to get into the language of it. You don't have to speak it as well as they do, but you have to venerate it. You have to understand that it comes from their heart. It isn't just a dalliance. It's something very special. Yeah. It's part of their lives. Yeah. So how does an esports franchise like Team Liquid make money? Well, that's another challenge. So the challenge is right now is that this is an industry that's in formation. You can see it with Overwatch, Bobby Kodak, and Activision building their first set of franchises, and Legal Engines, Brandon Beck, and Mark Merrill building their franchises, and they're selling for quite big as some money, and you have to commit a whole bunch of capital to it. But now that creates value around the franchises and then rules around the franchises so they can't be hurt and sold or made. And then you're looking at two other things that are happening. With baseball, a mature business, and basketball, a mature business, hockey, MLS, soccer, all mature businesses. Everybody knows the rules. You can't play in MLS unless you have a franchise. You don't get a franchise. Hundreds of millions of dollars. In a stadium, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. We're in for like $400 million in our MLS franchise. So it's like, this is not pocket money. This is real capital with real investors. In this area, what's happening is it's like inventing a new basketball team every three weeks. Suddenly, there's this underground player game that comes out in China five months ago and overtakes the most recent game. It's like a new basketball game comes in. You can't come in, but in these areas, they can come in. So, you know, how many games are going to come in? How long are they work? How mature are they? Here's the most important element. That's the Wild West. We're fielding nine teams in nine different businesses. And there's two or three more every time publishers are trying to create more games. Yeah. So the challenge is 
There's no limitation to it. No, there's no scarcity. No scarcity. The scarcity of the players. But here's the interesting element, and which is really, I think, fascinating. You have to build a franchise system. You have to build rules around it. You have to build a collective bargaining so someone can't steal all the players just because they pay the most money. That's a zero-sum game. It's not good. So all those rules have to be built. It's like the Wild West. But here are the two markers that tell you something special, that the audience, as it gets older, is staying with gaming. These people want a part of their lives. Right. Two things are happening. The audience is expanding horizontally. The audience is expanding temporally. In other words, they're now 30, 31, 32, full out. It's now getting what I call escape velocity because colleges are giving scholarships out in gaming and esports and all of them, the many, many colleges are giving it out and training them in them. So it's becoming an ongoing part of their lives. So when you see those markers, you get very excited. You think, my God, there's a lot of room for failure there. I mean, you can really fail and still succeed. It's all boats rise and rising tide. And I think that's what people who are in the traditional business recognize, that this isn't going away. And here's the key to that. The scarcest element, the choke point in the food chain is bandwidth, people's bandwidth. Time is just so much time. You gotta go to the bathroom. You got to go to sleep. You got to go to work. You got to do all these things. Go to school. You got to go to school. So the idea is you have a limited amount for movies, television, music, what you call leisure time activities, committed time activities. This part of the business, this is scary to say it. It's addictive, not habituating. You actually get addicted to this business. You get addicted to it. Not the business, the players I'm talking about, playing the game and following the game. It's somewhat even deeper than basketball and baseball and football, because you can do it all day, at night, at home, 24 hours globally. Can't do that with the NBA, MLB, as such. That doesn't mean they're going away. It means that, wow, there's a lot of room for a global audience with a lot of mistakes. Would you rather take 1% of a 3 billion audience or 27% of a 2 million audience? So esports is deeper, more addictive than these other sports. Yeah, deeper, more addictive, and it's a growing audience. The underserved market is still there to be really grabbed because it's human beings that all operate the same way. It's got a lot of the markers that says flashing light. This is something not to pay attention to. And it will cannibalize other businesses because it has the qualities to do that. So when, how, everything, I'll leave that to the pundits to decide that. At my age, I'm participating in it. It's a joy because I'm learning every day. I know so much less than I should and try to apply freedom from looking at the past of all the other sports, but there were really best practices in the other sports that are useful. All the advertising planning is useful. All the consumer audience people information is useful. How to address your teams in terms of their nature and their interest is useful. A lot of tremendous value there. You know, probably just in the third inning, so to speak, right? This is the beginning of the beginning. It's not even the beginning yet. It's so still to be born. It's still, still so early. It's like the gold rush. We're into a gold rush. And my own view is, for me, and the things I'm involved with, to be out there in California in 1849, but I want to be Levi Strauss. I don't know I want to be digging with my hands with shovels and picks. You may find gold that way, but I'll be robbed, I'll be killed, I'll be, I'll be shot. There'll be so many businesses that are going to grow around this business, so many industries that are going to take advantage of it. And they'll use some of the traditional lore and experience of baseball, football, basketball, and movies and television and music. It'll be valuable, extraordinarily valuable. I'm trying to play in that area rather than be the best player of Overwatch or any league which I couldn't be. Fascinating. Let me get to how Peter Goober became Peter Goober because you have this sense of life and sense of business and sense of purpose that is unique and certainly infectious, I would say, just watching you talk about all these things. But beyond business and beyond your history in film and television and sports, you are and have been a professor 
at UCLA School of Theater, Film, Television, and Digital Media, and in the Anderson School of Management for over 30 years. Yes. And you've been teaching classes such as Navigating a Narrative World, which explores the magic of story as a state-of-the-art technology for creating emotional connections with others. You once said, in association with young minds and their unique intellectual curiosity at the university level has been a great accelerator to my career. Totally, completely true. Tell me about that. When you have to confront coaching, I don't think it was teaching, students in multiple courses during a year in areas that connect. They of course, managing the poet and the engineer, the combination of left brain, right brain, or teaching leadership in the business school, or even the sports management course. We do a lead sports management course at UCLA. What you're doing is you're dealing with young minds who ask really unique questions. Questions not easily answered, and that's a value to me. And you learn how to not exert your superiority over the question or the person, but see what the question is telling you, not just what it's asking you. And understand how to listen really, really, really well to students because their curiosity is where the future lies. An unanswered question is an opportunity, not necessarily a problem. The idea of being able to coach them and is coaching myself and be able to listen to them and see where the world is going and see what their views are. These are the, the future participants, passengers, consumers, audiences of the future. And so you're listening to diverse men and women from all over the world because the school is so multinational that being able to not teach but coach them and by doing that, readdress my own priorities, readdress my own cornerstones, which are no longer viable, really seeing that, wait a minute, I got a problem in that. I see the way they're looking at this is an incredible tool. So that's one. And then preparing for the course, which is changes each year because the business changes each year is an incredible tool. You have to keep learning. You have to keep being risk averse, which is hard. You want to hold on to the past because that's been your success. You got to let go of the past for the new success and the risk that it holds. Doing that coaching, a sense of aliveness from it. And then I do another thing, which is interesting for me, because I'm older, meeting the younger, more aggressive groups of executives and leaders and managers and people that run businesses at younger age. What happens is by giving these courses, I do four courses. Up until last year, I taught every semester. Now I do two courses a year and I switch them around. Here's what I do. I always have the practical part. As part of the course, it's three and a half hours, For an hour and a half, I bring in somebody who's an expert on risk management, an expert on the merger of the left brain, right brain, an expert on telling the narrative digitally as opposed to an analog. So I bring in people that I could not normally interface with, big people like Eric Schmidt and Susan Wojcicki and all those kinds of people, and then really new young people. I got into esports only because Mark Merrill came to the leadership course. He was the owner of Legal Legends. I didn't even know what Legal Legends was. In the thing, he was talking about leadership, not about esports. He went into the whole thing. It lit me up. And then I became friendly with him. I talked to him. And the next thing he says, you should meet my partner. And the next thing I met his partner. And the next thing is his partner becomes my partner. I make my partner in the football team. The next thing I'm in Legal Legends. That's what it does. It expands the relationship capital of the base because I'm seeing them first person and I'm going to dinner with them afterwards and I'm connecting with them in a, in a unique way. Being with Bob Iger, teaching the course with him, he's a good friend anyways, but being with them is a unique opportunity. You can explore things that you can't in a business environment. So you're getting the best minds in the world in a safe space to engage with the students, you're seeing that dialogue, to expose the ideas. And I build the question platform, which is interesting. I don't talk about politics. It's really about the business of the business or the creativity of the business or the technology of the business. So I'm really, really always on point. 
and it gives me an incredible facility. It's a world-class facility. Yeah, you put yourself in a different zone. I always say that for LionTree, as an example, the average age of our employees is 33 years old, Mm -hmm. which I love because I get to learn Yeah, in some virtuous cycle every single day as you teach and as you grow from the people at the company because they're closer to the ground, some of these trends, than I am. And and I think you're experiencing the same thing or describing the same thing based on your class, right? You're learning from them, they're learning from you, and you're growing together and stimulating new thoughts and new ideas, new businesses. Yeah, the learning and growing or going, one of the two. And if you're hold, going, you're holding on to the past. And the past will sink you if you're just holding on to it. But think about this for the moment. Turn the tables. Mm-hmm. You do this show, right? Mm-hmm. You get to dig deep with people. You get to see what really makes them tick. You get to find out the fine elements in the watch that works, not just the big minute hand and the hour hand. You're getting to see the whole thing that works and you do that over time that's a value proposition for you as well as your audience but for you personally and you connect with them from their heart because they're really sharing with you what makes them work and that's very personal to them and that allows that connection to resonate as a business proposition, as a career proposition, and as a fun proposition. Yeah. I, I, that's, for me, exactly where it is. And I think it's no mistake that the people that stay curious stay valued. Curiosity is a much undervalued element. I look at the things I don't know as opportunities, not as problems. You know, oh, how can I learn that? What could I do? What's going on there? Okay, I, I'm not afraid to say, I don't know that. Explain it to me. How would I work that? Who could I learn from? That keeps me younger than physical age. It keeps me emotionally nimble. And if you're nimble and agile, you can take advantage of opportunities and then you can fall down and get up. Yeah. And the gold is really, or the richness sits in the texture and the nuances of the stories of the people, of the thought processes, right? That's really what dictates the outcome. There's no formula. Absolutely. You know, it's like when Iger said, he didn't use these words, but I'm the guardian of the relationship of my audience to my brand and my company. When I thought about that, a guardian, yeah, that's what it is, a guardian. You want to protect it, but you want to give them the most value possible. So you you don't want to make the protection preventing them from seeing the world and engaging the world and recognizing that even like, like Bob Iger has things he has to learn. So the idea of seeing that changes your own life, which is a great Great element. You know something someone says to me, you work all day and then you go teach from 3.30 to 7 o'clock at night. Aren't you exhausted? No, I'm exhilarated at when I'm done. I'm exhilarated, you know, because I've had the opportunity to engage my own brain, their brain, the student's brain. And that mix, it's fantastic. I see it. So a few other questions, then I'll let you go. But the whole name of the game is actually trying to see the future. So we have a lot of learnings from the past. You've had tremendous experience in all walks of the media life and obviously having run the studio, understand the content business, but all of media is changing so quickly. So when you look out to the future and you think about a movie or you think about traditional windows or the line between what's a film, what's a television series, does that even make a difference anymore? What do you think the biggest changes are as you look forward? Because the experience of the consumer, the experience of media has completely shifted and it will continue to shift, it sounds like. Yeah, I I would say the one-to-one relationship as opposed to a one-to-many relationship is the most interesting and exciting change where I can not just time shift where I watch it when I watch it, but I watch it the way I want to watch it. I'm engaged as a participant, right? Mm -hmm. I make a difference in the outcome, I think. I make a difference in my outcome. It's part of my Franco-lingua, part of my language. That's what's happening. And that doesn't mean the removal of other media or other forms, but I think that's what's happening. That's the deepest, most resonant element. So when you see anything you're doing have that kind of element, it becomes exciting looking down the road to the future. Now, you can reach a global audience contemporary with everything now. I was laying in Lhasa, looking at the Potola out of my window 
and watching the Warrior game on television at four in the morning. And three years earlier, I was there. I couldn't even get a phone call to find out what the score was <laughs> at all. So, I mean, the change of immediacy is so incredible that we now have all of this reach. You can see it with the smartphone and the element of it. Go to any of the third world, fourth world countries. You'll see they have a phone and a favela shack. Literally, the world is at our eyeballs, not even our fingertips, and vice versa. And we're getting real-time feedback from everybody, real-time feedback. We're going to know who's watching, how long, how they're doing, and what are they doing, what does it mean to them. We're going to get all that information. A connected world. So what does that mean down the road? The one thing is time value. In other words, really what you have to look at is the choke point. What's happened is technology has closed the gap between artists and audience. It speeded the experience between them. Between artist and audience. Between yeah. artist and audience. Yeah. It has. So right now, bang, the artist can already talk to the audience. The audience can talk to the artist. And it's right there. And doing it the way they individually want. One-to-one. So that says to you, that's a very powerful tool. And that's an addictive, habituating tool. And pick up this mobile phone and I look at it. And you know what it says to me? Crack cocaine. You're addicted to this. You leave this home, you turn around and you go back and get it. It's charging, you lose it. You feel like you lost your cousin or maybe your brother. So all of your media is coming through these kinds of things. You get addicted to it and you check it all the time. You have an important meeting, really important meeting going along and nothing goes bing, you look at it. In the important meeting, you go and look at it. So the idea is all of our media is coming through those kinds of devices. It's going to change the way we're wired, the way we behave, the way we organize ourselves. It's going to do that. And so I think how it's going to do it, not completely sure. You know, when it's going to do it, I am completely sure immediately. And what it's going to mean to other forms, some forms will survive, they'll make changes, some forms won't survive. But you'll jump into the fold. You don't want to resist it. I don't want to resist it, and I want to be curious about it. You know, I want to be curious. And you'll invest in the outcome. I do invest in the outcome. Obviously, I'm doing that now. And you say, what do I think is the most interesting? All right? Give you my best remark. The audience wants to be there. So you're seeing live entertainment whether it's concerts, whether it's sporting events, or the big things why sports so resonant, live music, all these elements are fit so perfectly into this audience's need, not missing it, seeing it in real time, making them events, all those things are really powerful measurements, whether it's the American Music Awards, the Golden Globes, the Academy Awards, whether it's the concert Coachella, whether it's NBA Warriors, whether it's Dodgers, whether it's LAFC football, all of those are things that you want to be connected to right away. And this habituation addiction is there. Yeah. All right. And I think that's going to help facilitate that on a global basis. It's going to expand the audience too. The issue is, for me, I made a long bet on something. I made a long bet on virtual reality because I saw it way, way, way early. And I made a long bet. It's a long bet, five years out, four years out. But anytime you can take an audience and give them the live experience where they become one to the experience, they are the director, producer, actor. When you go to a baseball game, a basketball game, a football game, you look at what you want to look at. You talk to your friends. You share it with them and you're participating in real time your own self. When you have a mediated experience in your home watching television, the director cuts to this, it cuts to that, he cuts to a commercial, he cuts to something else. You're looking at what they're telling you to look at and they're giving you the meaning they want you to have. Big difference. Mm -hmm. With VR, and we're at the early stage of VR. So it's like, you know, when my dad brought home a television set in the 50s, it was three inches across. We sat in front and looked at a test pattern of an Indian with a monotone. For an hour and a half at night, we were fascinated by it. And then when the wrestling came on, my grandmother was 89 that time, got up and was convinced that the wrestlers were inside the box in the back, all right? Uh-huh. And then we've gone from that to 8K, 4K mobile devices. And the speed of change, this phone is eight years old. The change is going to come faster and more exponentially and wider. What we're looking at is what won't happen is that the desire to be at one with an experience 
will never go away and only get stronger. And any technology that brings that into you one-to-one would be amazing. If I can be on the floor for the NBA basketball game I want to see or in the dugout seat for the baseball game I want to see or in the first row for the concert I want to see that's happening live or for a speech that I wanted to go to, if I can be there and look at it the way I want to look at and communicate with my friends simultaneously, the friends I choose, who are actually there with me, that's what you can do now. That's what I call virtual reality. And we are on the cusp of that. Now, everyone says, oh, the thing, the headset's so heavy and this thing. Yeah, that television set weighed 800 pounds. It was four foot by six foot and the screen was two inches wide, flickering black and white image. The equipment is going to change. Of course. Evolve. That's where they're making the mistake. They're yeah. thinking, you know, it's what is the promise of this technology, not what is the problem with the current technology now. What is the promise? If I can be there and participate personally with my own unique experience and share it with my friends in real time, man, man the gates. That's got to be the actual, you know, major thing. That doesn't mean it's going to end linear television or other digital media or smartphones. It just means... That will be a unique one. If I can be in the corner of a UFC fight for the champion, man, and I have to pay pay-per-view for that, it's going to work. So, now, so how do you invest in virtual reality? You how are you investing? In, you invest in learning. Right. You invest trying. And failure will happen. There'll be punctures and fatalities in that area. But the concept is the strength of that. The conceit that you can be at one, in one, at the place, at the time it's happening, in real time, powerful, powerful. And so how do you invest in it? You invest in learning about it and being open to it and not trying to exert your superiority over something that's interesting and unique, but seeing what you can do with it. That's all. So you're investing, making a couple of investments in a couple of companies that you can learn with. Some will work, some won't work. You know that the promise of it is very unique and it will be realized. It will be realized. I could tell you what I think the magic is. You want to know what the magic is? Of course. It won't be a headset. I did the headsets when I ran Lowe's theaters, the big IMAX headsets. And they are heavy. You knew somebody went to an IMAX theater because the head would walk around the street with the head bent down for an hour. But this is different. This is coming through mobile devices, through mobile technology. That's all there now. All the technology is there now. The hardware will get cheaper, lighter, softer, really easy. You're wearing a pair of glasses. There will be a pair of like Oakley glasses that wrap around you. They will be clear. You'll be able to look out when you do it. And you will say to your phone like you do now, Siri, get me the UFC fight at five minutes. It's $4.20. Fine. You'll press the button inside the glasses and the fight will be on inside you with little earbuds on the side, just on the side there with sound canceling sound so no one else can hear it around you. And you'll be watching it. And you will say, call Ari Burkoff. It'll dial the number. It'll call you and say, Ari, put on your Uka Patuka glasses right now. The fight's on. It's fantastic. How much is it? It's $4. Great. I'll put it on. Now you're watching the fight and I'm talking to you as if you're in there. You're watching the way you watch it like at a game and I'm watching the way I watch it. Ari, look to the right and see this guy. Oh my God. We're there. That's what people understand. The technology exists. Now the glasses got to be worked on. Some of the connectives got to be worked on, but that's the easy part. If you've been in a technology company, you know, once you show proof of process, Lighter, faster, cheaper. That's what technology does. Amazing. Okay, I'm going to end with a few fun questions. Okay. Okay. Favorite movie of all time? One I liked watching? Yeah. Favorite movie of all time? I got to give you two. Okay. One's The Godfather, and maybe Godfather 2. One's The Godfather. And then another one that blew me away. 
It's a perfect movie. It did very well, but you know, no one realized how perfect the movie was. It's called Witness. It, oh, was, it, it was a brilliant movie. It was a science fiction movie. Mm-hmm. It was a guy from another land who meets a woman from another land. I mean, it was so imaginative and so well done and so perfectly executed. It had humor, it had fear, it had anxiety, it had drama, it had a fulfilling ending. It was perfect emotional transportation. And that's why it stayed with me all these years. Favorite basketball team. I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you better be joking. I'll have to tear up the digital tape and shoot you. All right. The most interesting person that you've ever met. I could get in a lot of trouble for saying this, but Fidel Castro. I was doing a show in 19, I think, 83 in Cuba. I got to go to Cuba. I got permission from Kissinger at that time, got me permission. And I went and did the show and I spent several days with him on a big work boat that we had. We were doing diving. He was a diver. He was really, really interesting. We didn't get into a lot of politics, but he was really interesting in what he was curious about. He was just so curious about it in a very open way. It's funny how closed he was in the other way, so completely almost didactic about his political views and his other social views. But he was so curious and so interesting and so evolved in the discussions on the other subjects that I said, how can you love a person for one thing and not like him for the other thing? How do you brain separate that? How do you separate somebody you don't like their politics, but you love them, they're fun or they're interesting or they're curious, or they're imaginative. How do you do that? How do you bifurcate that? So it was a great experience for me. I mean, he was one of the most interesting people I've, I've ever met. Interesting, and I'm not praising him as politics. I'm just saying, answering your question directly, interesting. Unbelievably compelling, interesting. Every second was interesting. Wow. So let's just say you're sitting there watching a Warriors game or practice training time for the Warriors, and they're down a man. Someone could make it that day, and they say, Peter, we need a fifth. You come into the game, playing with your players, what position are you going to play? I would get immediately into a critical injury. I would find a way to get into a critical energy. <laughs> I'd run into the back post under the, that holds up the basket by accident in the first 10 seconds and fall to the ground, writhing in pain. My back can't move. Some injury that they couldn't diagnose quickly. <laughs> and my injury that I can't move. I have to be carried off the court. I'd put my thumb up like this and this guy will be okay. You know, and be carried off the court and let them take care of the rest. <laughs> Uh, the book that you're reading today? I'm reading uh, Sapiens. Right? Yeah. He's wrote another one too, but I haven't got Homo like, Deus. Right. So yeah. I'm reading that one and I'm reading Thinking Fast, fast Thinking Slow. Thinking Slow. By Donnie, Professor yeah, Donnie I'm reading, I'm reading that. I like that too. There's a lot of jewels in that. Yeah. You know, you have to read that. It's, it's kind of dense in places. We have to read it like twice to, to get exactly what he's saying, but it's very valuable. You would enjoy the Michael Lewis book called The Undoing Project about his life with his partner, Amos Tversky. Oh my God. Uh, Michael Lewis, I tried to buy Moneyball. I thought it was, I loved Moneyball. You see the movie? Yes, of course. It was terrific. And yeah. Brad Pitt was fantastic. You know, I knew Amazing. him. I did one of his early movies. And Jonah right? Hill too. Yeah. Oh, they, he was great. To me, I just sat in that movie and that movie ended and I just sat there and glowed. I said, this is my kind of movie. Me too. I've shown it to all my kids. Yeah, it's we great. watched it many times. It's great. Peter, thank you so much. This okay. has been fantastic. Thank really you. enjoyable. Been fun for me too. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Feel free to leave a review at iTunes as it helps people find the show. You can always follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.